Gravity Assist Maneuver is a space-based launch technique through which a vehicle, most frequently some kind of probe, but theoretically any kind of satellite or spacecraft could utilize this approach, is launched in what would seem to be the wrong direction in order to more efficiently make its way to its proper location. Sometimes this means using the gravity of a planet or moon to slow a vehicle down, as was the case with the 1959 Soviet Luna 3 probe which not only sent back the first images of the far side of the Earth's moon, its mission was also the first time we, as a species, utilized a gravity assist maneuver, in this case to swing up from below the moon up around toward the top, with the gravity of the moon itself pulling on the probe as it passed by, slingshotting it back toward Earth as it re-emerged around the top side of the moon. The 1973 U.S.-built Mariner 10 probe was the first craft to use gravity assist to explore a planet. In this case, the Mariner 10 was launched toward Venus, but primarily for the purpose of using the larger Earth-neighboring planet to slingshot toward Mercury, something that conceivably could have been accomplished by aiming at Mercury instead. But because of the nature of the planets, their orbital trajectories, and relative locations in space, it made a lot more sense, in terms of time and efficiency, at that moment, to lob the craft toward another target, using that target's gravity to sling it in the proper direction, as a consequence using less fuel and taking less time to get there. Maybe the most famous, and one of the more impressive early uses of gravity assist in spaceflight and exploration, though, was utilized by the Voyager program, with the Voyager 2 which launched in 1977, flying by Jupiter to take a look at the planet, but also to get a trajectory boost to reach Saturn, and the Voyager 1, which launched the following month, doing pretty much the same thing, and reaching Jupiter before the Voyager 2, because the arrangement of the planets had changed by then. The Voyager 2 then used Saturn's gravity for another assist, and then once more from Uranus, which helped sling it past Neptune and out beyond the solar system, where it and its partner probe now travel. The Voyager program was initially meant to be a larger effort, with four probes instead of two, taking advantage of a rare alignment of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, which only happens every 175 years or so. The project was proposed well in advance, because such an alignment was thought to allow a relatively underpowered spacecraft to do a lot and go very far, further than human-made artifacts had ever gone up till that point, using a series of well-planned gravity-assist maneuvers. The Voyager 1 and 2, as planned, wove their way through the solar system, crossing vast distances over the course of the last 40-plus years, and the final leg of the sun-influenced journey allowed them to snap images and collect data from the furthest expanses of the solar system before crossing the heliopause, the outer rim of the sun's influence, past which point no photons from our star reach into the void of interstellar between-star space. And that, by the way, is where they are today, both of them still collecting data from this void within the void, their systems predicted to continue operating, sending data back to us here on Earth from nearly 14 billion miles, which is about 22 billion kilometers or 147.5 astronomical units away. 
for several more years. So while we didn't get our fully funded Grand Tour program with twice as many probes available, the ones that did get launched making use of this fuel-saving gravity assist technique have done a pretty good job returning on their investment. The official program, after all, was scheduled to end in November of 1980, but both probes have survived and continued to be valuable even today, far beyond that expiration date. Important to recognize here is that a lot of what we do in space at the moment, especially beyond the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, wouldn't currently be possible without gravity-assist techniques. Yes, we could launch stuff in the direction of the outer planets, but the fuel required to get there, and to make minor adjustments along the way, would leave us with very little fuel, or completely empty tanks, by the time we arrived, disallowing adjustments that would give us the ability to make closer flybys, or other later minor course adjustments. There's a chance we could develop technologies, like solar sails, which various groups are working on right now, and which would allow us to deploy a sail that would use photons to provide initial propulsion outward, and potentially as slow-down energy and trajectory adjustment energy from anywhere in the solar system, given sufficient time to use photons as solar wind anyway. But at the moment, we're fairly limited by physics. The more fuel we put on board, the bigger the craft. The bigger the craft, the more fuel we use to launch it. And at a certain point, we either have to make massive and expensive spacecraft, or tiny and less maneuverable, and thus less broadly capable and flexible spacecraft. Gravity assists allow us to use less fuel, tapping into the latent physical properties of big objects in space, weaving our way around the solar system, and potentially, if we plan things well, exploring way further out than would otherwise be possible with our current technologies and resources. What I'd like to talk about today is another example of what you might think of as a gravity assist maneuver, but one that's playing out in a very different industry and with very different variables in play that will determine how successful the maneuver proves to be and how it will be perceived by people who, for a variety of reasons, may only see a metaphorical rocket being launched in the wrong direction. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. A sport utility vehicle, or SUV, is a broad vehicle category that has flourished in many automobile markets since around the mid-1990s for reasons that vary from the psychological to the legal and economic. Early proto-SUVs were introduced in the late 1930s and evolved into the consumer-grade station wagon, often called an estate car, or just an estate in Commonwealth countries, due to the original separate utility that they offered to buyers in the United States and the United Kingdom to carry luggage and or multiple passengers, either between railroad stations, station wagon, in the U.S., or between country estates, estate cars, in the United Kingdom. The first station wagons were basically just cars that were lengthened by adding wooden framing to the back and sides, artificially extending what was already there via carpentry. But later versions, post-World War I, utilized steel for that framing, and post-World War II, these types of vehicles were mass-produced. The hatchback car evolved from and alongside the station wagon as a more concise, shorter variation, and the minivan arguably descended from it as well, as a passenger-focused revision of the original cargo-focused design. All three types of vehicle, station wagon, hatchback, and minivan, 
are what's called two-box design vehicles, a term that refers to the pockets of internal volume found in a vehicle if you look at them from the side. A three-box design vehicle, like a coupe or a sedan, generally has three distinct regions. The front of the car, where you have the engine, the central passenger-carrying component, and the back, where you typically find a luggage-carrying trunk. These two-box design vehicles, in contrast, are more focused, with a front engine area followed by a long stretch of unified space, driver and passengers all packed together under the same roof, or in the case of a station wagon, the driver and all that luggage under the same pocket of encapsulated vehicle. Many modern hatchbacks and minivans have become what's called a one-box design, where the whole of the vehicle seems to exist within one single continuous and structurally non-distinct chunk of space, kind of a bubble-shaped car. But the distinction between versatile, everyday, a few passengers and some stuff-carrying vehicles, and those that are more focused on either carrying a great many people or a whole lot of stuff, is often structurally and aesthetically distinguishable by how these vehicles are visually compartmentalized. The Jeep Cherokee, released in 1984, is generally considered to be the first modern-style SUV. It utilized a unibody construction compared to the body-on-frame construction found in the pseudo- or proto-SUVs of previous decades, and this put the Cherokee in a similar category as passenger cars, while still retaining the newly added off-road attributes and capabilities that were tacked on to the design, gleaned from pickup trucks, but also from military vehicles that had been popularized in ground-based conflicts around the world. Branding efforts kicked into high gear in the late 1990s, positioning SUVs as a safer, more rugged and secure, and often manlier variation of the traditional hatchbacks and station wagons and minivans. The SUV has since gobbled up the market share of these other non-standard car vehicle types, and despite often being not at all built for, or truly capable of, true off-roading, the design sensibility maintains a focus on implied sturdiness, safety, reliability, and resiliency, even in cases where these vehicles are known to flip without warning when they can't muster the strength or balance to pull themselves out of roadside ditches, and in cases where they otherwise serve as borderline death traps compared to similarly priced sedans or pickup trucks. SUVs still look and seem very well fortified, and at times even militarized, which is thought to be a significant aspect of their market appeal, based on research that's been conducted by branding firms and unaffiliated organizations alike. The success of SUV-related marketing efforts cannot be overstated. While at first the SUV market mostly pulled customers away from other light truck brands and models, by 1999 SUVs were outselling regular passenger cars in all U.S. markets, and by 2003, there were 76 million SUVs and SUV-like vehicles on U.S. roads, accounting for around 35% of all vehicles on the road at that time. Part of why this segment of the consumer vehicle market exploded at that moment was that SUVs, due to their in-betweener positioning of not quite a truck and not quite a car, straddled enough lines to be officially categorized for legal purposes as light trucks which depicts their primary use case as work, like hauling lumber or machinery or things like that, as opposed to primarily passenger-carrying duties. That classification allowed manufacturers to churn out big, bulky vehicles 
with lower fuel standards while still adhering to the corporate average fuel economy, or CAFE, standards that were introduced in 1975. This allowed these vehicle companies to save money using less efficient engine components, but also netted them tax concessions for producing what were ostensibly work-related vehicles. This loophole, providing consumer-grade passenger vehicles of this kind, with tax benefits and lower efficiency requirements than any other type of passenger vehicle on the market, was the result of lobbying by Jeep to gain these advantages for their original Cherokee SUV, but it's also part of what led to the boom in SUVs overall in the following years. The other legal benefit enjoyed by the producers of these passenger vehicles that were being legally classified as something else entirely was the consequence of the so-called chicken tax, a Cold War-era protectionist trade tariff imposed in 1974 as a response to tariffs placed on U.S. chicken exports by France and West Germany. This tariff, in practice, meant that imports of certain products like potato starch, brandy, and dextrin were levied so that American producers of these products would not face what was considered to be unfair competition from foreign producers when it came to things like chickens. The result of the chicken tax was a tariff of 25% on these products, which in practice made the foreign-produced variations less appealing to local potential purchasers, because the prices were almost always higher. One industry that was lumped into the counter-tariff levied by the U.S. was the automobile industry, specifically the light truck industry. Some types of U.S.-made pickup trucks, as a consequence, had a significant advantage over foreign-made alternatives, because those foreign-made alternatives would cost 25% more than they would elsewhere, giving American-made brands a substantial price tag advantage in the biggest consumer market in the world, the U.S. market. SUVs, because of their legal designation as light trucks, were able to make use of this same tariff setup, allowing American-made SUV brands to operate in the U.S. market without much in the way of foreign competition for quite some time. This meant that on top of the tax deductions and ability to skirt fuel efficiency requirements, producers of SUVs in the U.S. were able to operate with very little competition and thus could hike up their prices, could produce at a lower standard of quality, and could get away with it because the number of options available were quite low, despite the market for this vehicle class steadily increasing due to heavy marketing investments by the manufacturers. The end result of this investment and this legal designation was that SUVs absolutely dominated the United States vehicle market throughout the 2000s and up until about 2010, at which point crossover SUVs, something between a hatchback and an SUV, or maybe a station wagon and an SUV, began to capture market share, due in part, it's thought, to their relative compactness and better fuel economy than their larger SUV cousins. Leading up to that inflection point, though, car manufacturers could earn between $10,000 and $18,000 in profit, on average, for each new SUV sold, which is absolutely astounding compared to, for instance, compact cars, which sometimes sell at a loss with the intention of making that money back by providing services for the car as it ages. From 2000 until around 2010, vehicle production plants around the U.S. were refocused on this money tree product that they'd come up with, and the marketing investments to promote this product type were massive. 
Around 2008, though, fuel prices increased and the economy declined, resulting in widespread closings of SUV plants around the United States, which, because of their transition from other less profitable vehicle types over to SUVs full-time, meant a whole lot of car industry towns around the U.S. were hit hard, with nothing left to produce. Those sales picked back up in 2010, when fuel prices dipped and foreign markets began to be hit more heavily by SUV-focused marketing efforts. And by 2015, global sales of SUVs had arrived at where the U.S. was back in the year 2000, with SUV sales overtaking the sales of all other medium-sized cars combined, accounting for nearly 23% of all light vehicle sales that year. In China, in particular, SUV sales ballooned to about 48% of the vehicle market in 2015, and similar expansions were found around Southeast Asia and Europe. In 2016, globally, SUVs accounted for about 26% of the car market, and in the first part of 2017, it was up to 36.8%. The name of the game since 2016 has been producing a combination of those smaller crossover SUVs for people who would traditionally have bought sedans, and high-end, luxury-branded, tank-like SUVs for people who have access to decent-sized parking spaces and or who want to feel like they're driving a military vehicle down the highway. SUVs continue to be, by far, the most profitable type of vehicle for car companies to produce, and they continue, by far, to be the least fuel-efficient and, by many metrics, the least safe but according to research conducted on customers, they also continue to be perceived as the most safe-seeming car type. Now that context established, the article I'd like to unspool today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, GM Doubling Down on Big SUVs Unveils Longer Chevy Tahoe and Suburban. This piece is about United States automobile giant General Motors' plan to expand their heavy-duty range of vehicles to include more and bigger SUVs and big trucks in the coming years. It covers some of the opportunities GM has to utilize their existing big-as-hell vehicle manufacturing infrastructure, the ability and know-how to produce these SUVs and trucks on scale, while also incorporating some of the new innovations found in more modern-style vehicles, especially electric ones. Over-the-air updates, for instance, famously used by Tesla to provide software updates to the systems on their vehicles, could be used by near-future SUVs that still run on petroleum, adding new features or apps to their dashboard utilities, and potentially even increasing their fuel efficiency, conceivably at least, similar to how Tesla has been able to increase the range drivers get from a single charge by coming up with clever new efficiencies within the software. A more important focus for this company in the near term, though, seems to be producing somewhat bigger and more luxury-feeling SUVs, those software upgrades thrown in as a sci-fi-like possibility, and the real story being that these vehicles will be bigger, badder, and more SUV-like than any SUV they've ever produced, all the better to compete with the new players in this space, like Ford, which has increased sales of their Expedition and Lincoln Navigator SUVs by 45% this year, and Fiat Chrysler's plan to produce a new SUV line called the Grand Wagoneer, which is based on a decades-old station wagon concept that stepped over into proto-SUV territory well before SUVs were a thing. 
GM is foreseeing massive SUV sales in the coming years and has invested $1.4 billion to expand their Arlington, Texas facilities where they produce SUVs, and both Ford and Fiat Chrysler are reportedly making similar investments in their SUV production infrastructure. What stood out to me reading this piece is that at a moment in which much of the economy is leaning toward ecological solutions to power and production, and where a huge swath of the automobile industry seems to be segueing toward a seemingly inevitable electric future, these American auto manufacturers are making these kinds of investments in what would seem to be a comparably outdated and culturally outmoded vehicle type, indicating that they're confident in that vehicle type's perpetuation. You don't invest a billion and a half dollars to upgrade your manufacturing capabilities if you think that investment will only last you another year or two. That's a decade or more worth of investment minimum. That means these mainstream U.S. companies, the biggest U.S. car companies, by the way, and the fourth, fifth, and eighth biggest automobile producers in the world, even after the U.S. automobile industry all but collapsed in 2008, they are projecting that this shift toward greener automobiles is either not fully baked or is not something they need to worry about, or potentially that there will be a shift toward electric cars, but alongside that chunk of the market, they'll also need to serve the people who don't particularly care about the environment, or those for whom that is a secondary concern, after the perception of safety and road dominance. I would add off-roading capabilities in there as well as concerns, but some research has shown that fewer than 5% of SUV owners will ever take their vehicle off-road, so it's probably not a huge priority for those buying them. That said, GM did make an interesting argument in their announcement materials for these new, bigger-than-ever SUVs that may partially explain their approach. They claim that the profits they make from this line of immensely polluting products will give them the resources they need to invest in electric vehicles, including, according to the president of General Motors, a battery plant and an all-electric pickup truck. No dates or specifics were given for the plant or the pickup, but seeing as how 72% of GM's profits in 2018 came from pickup trucks and SUVs, it stands to reason that if you want to build up a stockpile of money to invest in something quite expensive, like completely changing your vehicle line, that would be one way to do it. The issue here is the seeming discord between the supposed end goal and the path that they are ostensibly taking to get there. It's probably good, for many reasons, legal, political, ecological, and economical, to eventually shift away from combustion engines to electric propulsion, and sooner rather than later. The writing does seem to be on the wall in that regard, and it's not just hippies saying that. The whole automobile industry worldwide is tilting in that direction. Alongside efforts to switch everything from passenger planes to cargo ships to electric energy as well. The holistic future energy system has not been fully fleshed out yet, but the potential benefits of such a system and the seeming and increasingly broadly felt necessity to do so, to build such a system ecologically, makes it a near certainty that barring some technological revolution in a different direction, the whole industry will eventually shift to electric or some other less polluting non-combustion engine-based propulsion system, because that would allow this industry to make use of the new energy economy that we are seeing the very first stages of right now, 
segueing away from the existing different, more pollution-prone energy economy that will probably be phased out, that's the plan at least, within the next couple decades. But the approach being proposed here seems wrong if you believe that the point of switching to electric is at least partially to alleviate some of the issues we see with human-produced pollution and human-amplified climate change. It would be like building and selling a bunch of futuristic new guns and saying that you will use the profits from those guns to fund world peace. It may very well be that that's your intention, but it kind of seems like a step in the wrong direction, doesn't it? Consider for a moment, though, that despite its superficial distastefulness, this might actually be a legitimate way to propel the industry forward, especially if you're at the helm of a very big ship trying to turn it in a new direction, but you know that any sudden movements could tip the whole thing over. There's just a whole lot of momentum behind any action a company the size of General Motors or these other car companies might take. And that means rather than having the benefit of being able to forecast just a year or two out and make decisions based on that, they've already built the infrastructure and made the investments necessary for 10 or 20 years into the future. A 5 or 10 year time horizon on this then, building up a war chest along the way, may actually be the smartest available move for them if they want to churn out electric vehicles that are any good, and build them in such a way that the market and the service ecosystem behind them are sustainable. It's also worth considering that very few technologies, especially green ones, wind turbines and solar panels and electric car components, are produced without generating waste. In some cases, wildly toxic waste. And this is true all the way up and down the manufacturing chain, from the abuse of human beings and the landscape in areas where lithium is produced, to the decimation of a country's worth of ecosystems, and the people, including the children, living in those countries, that are being utilized to gather cobalt, destroying their homes as they do so. What's more, the refinement of these materials into solar panels and massive wind-harvesting turbines and processor-laden electric car drive systems can also, alongside the gathering of those raw materials, be quite polluting and wasteful endeavors. The production of all the batteries that we will need to enable our all-electric future alone will likely be an environmental catastrophe. And although the companies making such products and providing such services fly the flag of eco-friendliness, that doesn't change the fact that there are downsides and antithetical-seeming byproducts to their processes and products. From the scale of that production chain to how things are shipped and packaged to how things are refined from raw materials into finished components to the at times quite misleading marketing efforts that distort the capabilities and green credibility of some of these products. None of which is precisely the same thing as generating entirely different products, which will be used for potentially decades, accomplishing the exact opposite of what electric vehicles would accomplish after they've been produced and on the road. Those same downsides apply to traditional SUVs, and those production-level downsides do not lead eventually to in-use upsides. It's just pollution all the way up and down the chain, followed by more pollution once they are used. And that endpoint is something that most electric vehicles and solar panels and such would not have. It's quite possible, though, that GM's gamble could actually pay off, in the sense that they would have an overflowing bank account at precisely the moment that these green automobile technologies, which are currently in their very early embryonic form, begin to come of age. 
It may be that GM is able to grab the baton from the other players in this space, the ones that are currently making early investments, hoping to capture market share and secure their position in the industry. And thus GM could be in a great spot to re-energize a market segment that would otherwise falter and deflate, depleted of all those resources they invested, right at the moment in which a large investment is most necessary to help those early investments and products go mainstream. Through that lens, the fact that GM and their sprawling traditional car industry peers seem to be approaching this changeover from a completely different angle than far more nimble and risk-comfortable entities like Tesla could be a good thing. And that benefit could be doubly good because of the comparable enthusiasm for changeover we seem to be seeing from European car manufacturers in particular, which appear willing to make the upfront investments necessary to change this space sooner rather than later which is partially a response to legal realities in the European Union, and partly, one would suspect, a means of grabbing more global market share for their products, alongside, of course, the more human-relevant desire of the people working in these industries to be part of that change. But the dichotomy between players in this market could result in better outcomes than we would have if everyone in the consumer vehicle industry was doing precisely the same thing and taking the same approach. The European car companies might gain first-mover advantages and pave the road for everyone else, and then the more slow-moving but well-moneyed U.S. companies can step in, having taken their time and as a consequence able to add their bulk, their heft, their manufacturing capabilities to the electric car market. And they'll pay more to make up the distance that's emerged between them and their cross-Atlantic rivals but they'll also be in a position to pay more, and they will have built up different advantages and corporate attributes in the meantime, which would make that industry, that ecosystem, a more diverse one. The flip side of this argument, though, is that GM and Ford and Fiat Chrysler might be dragging their heels because they want to wring as much money out of the existing way of doing things as possible to get as much from their existing infrastructure and the current market and the investments they've already made as they can, because they're corporations, and thus they are able to behave sociopathically by design when it comes to this sort of decision and situation. Just like fossil fuel companies then, they will make gestures towards some possible future in which they are theoretically part of the new post-petroleum solution, greenwashing their efforts just enough to avoid some of the worst of the criticism and legislation that would otherwise come their way. But they will mostly just continue to do business as usual, except for their possible increased enthusiasm for the existing way of doing things, scooping up as much money and market share as possible while everyone else pivots toward a not-yet-anywhere-near-universally-popular-and-usable future. From this perspective, then, GM and their cohort are taking their time because the amount of additional pollution they create through their products does not register on their spreadsheets, and the true lifeblood of their accounting sheets, money, is most easily gained by doubling down on what is working today, on the bread-and-butter SUVs that have massive profit margins, despite any potential downsides that might emerge or be amplified by their reinforcement of that market. Which, honestly, is fair. According to the rules of their industry, and according to how American capitalism in particular is set up, they would arguably be doing the right thing, taking either approach. It's very possible to have personal morals that one or the other of these approaches would conflict with, but according to the rules by which they abide, as the type of company that they are, either move would arguably be a smart one. 
It is worth asking ourselves, though, using this example as a starting point, what sacrifices are worth making to achieve the ends that we have in mind when it comes to future ecological outcomes? There's a whole lot of unused oil sitting in stockpiles around the world, for instance, and there's a very good chance that moving as fast as experts think we need to move in terms of reducing our emissions will actually require burning most or all of that oil, plus a whole lot more oil that has not been pumped yet. We simply don't have the processing capacity using only clean energy infrastructure yet to build what we need to build to expand on that infrastructure. And that will change along the way, but if we want to move fast, it will almost certainly mean utilizing a lot of counterproductive sources of energy, resulting in short-term costs, perhaps quite substantial ones, and not just of the monetary variety, in order to produce those long-term gains. Once you spend that petroleum to produce solar panels, hopefully, for a long while into the future, you'll be able to use those solar panels, which in turn should help you burn less petroleum than you spent originally to make them. Part of the reason investments in wind farms and hydroelectric dams and solar panels are increasing so quickly is that already the investment seems to be worth the outcomes, at least in terms of the money invested. It's less standardized in terms of pollution created and environmental damage done along the way to produce these energy-producing technologies, though. And this is a component of the green energy industry that will need to be really seriously assessed in the coming years. As this global movement becomes more cohesive and interconnected, giving us more data to work with and more reliable emissions and pollution output numbers alongside estimates of environmental damage done, that we can then use to refocus our attention on the most ideal means of producing solar panels, taking into account both cost and impact. That's a vital part of this conversation that we really don't have the language to discuss yet, because a lot of the comparisons will not be apples to apples, and it's difficult to know how much money saved, or how much time saved, is worth devastating a square acre of land in a part of the world that is already experiencing a great deal of ecological devastation. New markets will need to emerge to provide us with the data and the conversion rates for these sorts of things, which will make it easier for entities like corporations to adhere to increasingly humanistic standards, while also giving us individuals a starting point for thinking about these trade-offs. It would be wonderful if all green technologies were universally good things that we could just wholeheartedly support without thinking about downsides, but that's simply not the case, not yet at least. And potentially, and this is something that we really have to accept, potentially never. Thus, conversations about business models and product strategies in this space likewise exist in a bit of a gray area, rather than being true black and white issues with clear heroes and villains. Almost all of the heroes here have dirty little damage-causing secrets, and almost all of the villains could potentially provide the right assets and resources at the right moment to get us to where we need to be wherever that ends up being, ultimately. Each new energy revolution is fueled and enabled by the energy revolution that came before it. The rosiest picture of what happens next is that we use as many of our remaining polluting resources as possible to decarbonize our technologies, infrastructure, and economies, while also hopefully figuring out ways to safely decarbonize our atmosphere, to pull those pollutants and that overabundance of CO2 out of the air so that we can move forward to enjoy our new, more sustainable energy reality. 
which itself will almost certainly bring entirely new problems at some point, which we will then have to solve with whatever comes next. Some new, shiny, also flawed dynamic that replaces our solar and wind and other environment-powered energy zeitgeist. That is just the rhythm of this sort of development, historically at least. That rosy picture is predicated on us acting on the information to which we have access, though, and will only really happen if there are not other, more potent forces and incentives acting in opposition to that shift. There's a significant chance that we will be slowed or stopped in accomplishing this transition by such forces, and that consequently we will have a far more stratified, potentially far less casually wealthy and safe and healthy society in the future compared to what we enjoy today. It could be that we burn the power we currently wield for other things, not leaving ourselves enough so that we're able to build the next step energy economy that we are currently imagining and struggling mightily to create. Or it could be that we mismeasure and make bad assumptions, thinking that surely we have enough time to build up a monetary stockpile before we take any serious steps into the unknown. Not an unreasonable idea, but perhaps a devastatingly inaccurate one. And we won't know for sure which is the case until it's too late to do anything about the dice that have already been thrown. General Motors' actions here, and the parallel actions of many other automobile companies in the U.S. and around the world, might be a callous, cynical money grab, taking advantage of other companies' comparable beneficence, their attempts to save the world and willingness to make investments, to make the sacrifice required to do so, so that GM and their kin don't have to. But it could also be a clever, asymmetric approach to achieving the same ends. Perhaps not for the same reasons, but the outcomes driven by economics could be the same. And it could be that we all benefit from having those distinct approaches, lest we find that one universally followed approach turns out to be the wrong one. And we invest all of our time and energy and resources in that one very well-meaning but ultimately flawed path ending up less well-off than we would have been had we allowed each relevant entity to do what they wanted based on their priorities, incentives, and moral compasses. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement by Buster Benson. I was a little bit skeptical when I went into this book because a lot of these types of communication or very often business communication oriented books are a whole lot of fluff and could be easily summarized as a tweet or a fortune cookie. And then the book is just a whole lot of case studies and over explanation of that same thesis statement over and over and over again. But in this case, reading the whole book was, I think, worthwhile. The author shares a diverse collection of ideas about ways of looking at conversation and approaching conversation, things that are more holistic and strategic, but also things that are more tactical based on particular situations. And if you're listening to this show, which is arguably a less shouty, less dramatic, less argumentative version of news analysis, there's a good chance you will be interested in the idea of having more productive disagreement and thus more productive communication with other people. And this book definitely provides some valuable insight into such an aspiration. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Why Are We Yelling? by Buster Benson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. My blog is at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. 
I've got a couple of new publications that you might enjoy at askcolin.com and brainlenses.com. And if you want to reach out and say howdy, feel free to do so on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.